What if it rained food? What if Earth was a cube? What if we had nine lives? What if bits could fly? It's absurd. If money grew on trees, if we didn't have knees, if we walked through life slightly magnetical, it's absurd. Absurd hypotheticals. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Absurd Hypotheticals, the show where we overthink dumb questions so you don't have to. I'm your host, Marcus Lehner, and I'm joined here today by Chris Yee and Ben Storms. Say hi, guys. Hey, I'm Chris. Hey, I'm Ben. So today we are doing our second ever throwback episode where we go back in time, take some old questions that we did earlier in the show, and revisit them for, you know, because we want to. Oftentimes because we didn't feel we did great the first time, or we have some new idea for that hypothetical. But it's kind of fun to revisit ones we've done before and try to explore new areas. Yeah, just in, in general, we think we've improved the way we do this show. So we want to try to bring that to old episodes, too. Yeah, exactly. It, it's funny where we're like, I'm fo- like I follow a couple of the, like, the podcasting forums. And one of the things I've heard from like experts is like, don't ever tell anyone to listen to the first episode of your podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like Whenever I tell someone about our podcast, I have no idea which episode to tell them to watch to listen to because i don't want them to listen to the early ones (laughs) yeah so when i when i tell people and here's here's a hot tip if you're trying to help us spread the show and telling your friends how cool it is say tell them to look what i say look at the last like 10 20 episodes and pick a topic that you think is interesting and listen to that one because yeah we've done this episode 124 we've had 123 episodes to get better at this since we started so episode one, if you listen to that, it's going to be a much lower quality podcast. And then your friends going to listen to it and they're going to be like, ugh, this show wasn't very, this podcast was very good. And you're, they're never going to give you a second chance. You can't be like, oh, no, 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 no. You got to listen to a new one. It's done. You've missed the opportunity's gone. Yeah. Whenever I tell my friends about the podcast, they're like, oh, yeah, I'll listen from the beginning. I'm like, no, don't do that. Please don't do that. <laughs> never do that. Yeah. <laughs> my girlfriend's parents are like, no, 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 we insist. We always listen to them from the beginning. I'm like, but they're better now. And they're like, nope, nope. And I'm like, they're not chronological. Like, nope, nope. That said... They're on episode, like, 80, so... So they stuck with it. <laughs> they stuck with it. That's because our show was good. And, obviously, now improving. We should, we should like, <laughs> staple these episodes over the original episodes and pretend <laughs> they never existed. Although, actually, actually, the first one here, and, and Ben, I'll use this as the way to pass it off to you. I actually liked this episode quite a bit the first time we did it. But tell us what your question was, Ben. Yeah, so I went all the way back to episode 7, which is kind of insane, but... The, the question that I'm looking at is, what if you were six inches tall? What we did in this one, so so Marcus talked about basically being like an exterminator where you went in and just like mano a mano fought rats <laughs> with like a tiny gun and a jetpack. Crystal from a vending machine and I like rode around on the shoulder of a blind person to be their eyes, which are all great ideas, clearly. Yeah, those are solid answers. <laughs> yeah, no, like, like legitimately, I actually thought this was, was a lot of fun. But there are, there are two things I want to address that we didn't in the episode. One is something that came up in the episode, which was, like, right at the end, we started talking about if you would survive falling off a dresser. And we had zero idea. <laughs> we were oscillating between, like, yes, you would, because ants are small and ants can, which... I mean, I guess logic, sure, whatever. And then obviously you wouldn't because you're a lot greater than an ant. I don't know. But I wanted to actually figure that out because I feel like that's relevant information. And two, we all came up with fun career choices, but none of us actually talked about, you know, how just living as a six inch tall person would be. 
And I wanted to get to some of that as well, because I feel like there's, there's, you know, definitely some stuff to think about there. So first off, let's start with the falling off the dresser part. So really all we care about here is how fast you're going when you hit the ground. You know, as you know, it's not the fall that kills you, it's hitting the ground. So it's actually really easy to figure this out. Dressers are apparently about 30 inches tall, which is one of those things that I knew, but always sounds wrong when I think about how tall 30 inches is and how tall a dresser is, but whatever. When you drop off, you're just going to be accelerated by gravity. That's 9.8 meters per second squared. New calculation, you're going to fall for a little under half a second. You're hit the ground at about 8.65 miles per hour, which sort of for comparison is about the speed that you, if you're like running pretty fast, at like that speed. So it's not going to feel nice. It's basically going to be running into like a wall at relatively full speed, but it's not going to kill you. Like, I guess, unless you like land directly on your neck, but I think you should be able to avoid that. Hopefully. Yeah. Lots of things kill you if they happen directly to your neck. Right. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and just like sort of as, as proof of that in another episode, I, I found a study from AAA that basically was looking into how dangerous getting struck by vehicles as for pedestrians and sub 10 mile per hour collisions only had a fatality or severe injury, like under 2% of the time. And a lot of that was in older people. So in that episode, you also, you also use that information to compare it to falling. Yeah, ex exactly. That's why I used it originally. Yeah. <laughs> so obviously that's not going to be perfect because you're much smaller and have like smaller bones. I feel like it's not going to map a hundred percent, but likely you're not going to die or like seriously injure yourself falling off a dresser. So that's a relief because that could be a very big part of your life is, you know, clamping on furniture. I did want to then figure out what your terminal velocity was just to make sure, like I was pretty sure at that point that you couldn't just fall from whatever and be okay, but I want to check. And I conveniently from another answer, calculated uh, terminal velocity. So it was pretty easy to figure this out. And I won't go through the whole calculation. That was episode 103, um, which was one inch people, actually. I won't go through the whole calculation. If you want to know how, you know, we sort of did that, you can go there. But basically your terminal velocity would be a little over 60 miles per hour, which would 100% kill you. So you are not free to just jump off of things, sadly. But I mean, it's better than being full size, I guess, for, for those purposes. So now that's out of the way, what is actually living as a six inch tall person like? And really my first question that I just want to figure out was where do you actually live? Because I know we talked about this some in, in the original, uh, original question, just getting into a like normal building is going to be very, very hard for you. You cannot open a door. You are going to have a lot of work going upstairs. So you kind of, kind of need some, some more specialized, uh, housing, I guess. And I decided, I thought about, you know, getting like a P.O. box or something and living in that. But there are going to be a lot of issues there. I feel like it doesn't meet zoning requirements. Uh, you're not going to have electricity or running water or anything. So I think your best option is going to be most likely subletting a portion of someone's regular sized house. Which, a question for you guys. If a six inch tall person came to you and said, hey, I need like three square feet of your home for my home. If I give you $50 a month, is that cool? Would you take them up on that? <laughs> um, $50 a month? It depends a lot because, like, you can still, like, there's there's a slew of problems that roommates bring along. Not all of them are solved by them being tiny and in a corner. That's, yeah, that's I'd, fair. I'd probably yeah. charge them more than $50 a month. All right, so I guess what's your, what's your point then? If, if, if you... At least a couple hundred. A couple hundred? Wouldn't it for, like, like, like 100 or 150 I just don't want a roommate. <laughs> that's fair. All right. 
Yeah, it would really it would it would really depend, especially depending on how much they they rely on you for stuff. Like if they're bugging you all the time. I mean, again, if they are still another person, so that that's all the person has. But assuming they have a you know they're 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 good people, and you can you can you can talk to them, and you know you can enjoy having that company. I have a a nice one of those one of those cube dressers, like one of those cube storage units, like five by five, like a wall unit, and I could see renting out all 25 of those as different apartments that would be cool <laughs> an apartment building in your apartment that's amazing yeah. i love that idea nesting <laughs> nesting apartments you, you just pay for your apartment by renting out a a like cube cube thing you you, you, you know charge them all like a twelfth of your rent plus they, they can go mano a mano on all the <laughs> running around so i guess here here is here is a maybe some relevant information for for chris's point of view that you you know what if I told you that it turns out that the the standard scale for dollhouses is one to twelve, which just happens to be the scale from a six inch person to a, a six foot person? That's convenient. It's very convenient. I was actually really happy when I found this out because I was looking for tiny furniture and I found out that yeah, dollhouse furniture is actually perfect. I did, by the way, while looking for tiny furniture, furniture find two insane things. One at this actual furniture and you know decor company. I found they, they have what they call the miniature five drawer chest with slide, which is it's not it's too big for our six inch tall person. It's it's about 16 inches tall and 17 inches wide, but definitely like too small um, to actually do anything with their description. They say perfect for organizing tiny objects or for a child to play grown up, which sure, whatever. This costs almost thirteen thousand dollars. I don't know why. Oh I don't know how it could possibly cost that much. I mean, dollhouses get pretty intricate. But this isn't even dollhouse size. This is just like, like, it's like, it's like, I'm like, sign your desk. I don't know. Like, why? Is it maybe luxury dollhouse size? Like, if you are, if you have the means to just buy, like, crazy stuff, maybe you want to scale up your dollhouse a little bit because you can get cooler and finer details and have a more, I don't know, like, easier to modify dollhouse. It's just, like, I, maybe, bigger. I don't like, know. you just want to do a big dollhouse. <laughs> Who knows? It's just weird because they have, like, actual size furniture that only costs, like, a couple hundred dollars more. I'm very confused by this product. I don't know if they just put the wrong price on it i don't know i'm so confused <laughs> but it's just this tiny ass chest of drawers i don't know whatever anyway so i found that i had to share that because it was bonkers to me but more importantly in this 112th dollhouse scale i found that you can buy an exact replica of nixon's chair from the white house <laughs> <laughs> Why? Just specifically Nixon's <laughs> chair. Uh, so actually, that's that is actually not true. <laughs> they also have um, George W. Bush, uh, Ford, and JFK. Wait, so each president has a specific chair to them? I mean, I guess so. It's not, that's not that surprising. People had their own office chairs. Like, it's not that ridiculous. I guess. What do they do with the chair when their term is over? I, I, I'm not going to lie. I did not Google that. <laughs> throw it out freaking government waste yeah i, I although i like know. the idea that the first thing you do as president is get fitted for a chair and like there's the old president's chair there and it just has like a bunch of plaster on it and you just sit your ass down on it <laughs> <laughs> and they take your butt mold to make you a better chair uh, so yeah so i guess if you want to if you wanted to you could lounge around your house in a replica of nixon's or ford's or w bush or jfk's uh white house chair which is cool you can find out which president your butt is most similar right to you know it's kind of nice. the comfort of the chairs yeah so there you go so anyway i figure that's probably your best option just to get access to um you know electricity and whatnot is finding someone who will let you sub that part of their house getting into the house is still tricky 
unfortunately, there's a very easy solution, which is one of those fun electronic cat doors. <laughs> um, specifically, I found one that you actually, if your cat is microchipped, you can program in their microchip, and then it uses an RFID reader to recognize it and open for them. Note, I am not saying you would microchip yourself. I want to make that very clear. That may be a little excessive. It would also be a very big microchip for your size. <laughs> it would. It would. More so that you would carry it around. It basically just be like a card swipe for your home, and you just walk on in. Um, the opening is like four and three quarter inches by five and five eight, so it's a, it's not perfect, but it's definitely big enough that you could like you know duck in. So you could easily enter and exit your shared home. You could buy a home still and install a cat flap on it and just live as a tiny person in a giant home. Probably just using like the entryway for most of your stuff, but I think that in terms of of ease, ease of use, subletting is going to be your best option. I looked into cooking some. Cooking is weird. There are technically camping stoves you could use that are like these tiny like backpacking camping stoves. They're only, you know, three inches tall that you attach to propane. I don't know how the person you're subletting from would feel about that, having an open camping stove in their entryway or whatever. But technically you could have a stove that would work. It's not ideal, but it does exist. The biggest thing I want to figure out at this point, though, was really... Could you have a phone? The answer, sadly, is it's mostly no. It's yes and no. So there is no phone no phone you can carry with you. No phone is that small. There are no tiny phones? There, there are tiny phones, but not that tiny. I was hoping there was a tiny phone that was just like the size of a SIM card, but no one has, at least no one <laughs> I have found has done it. The good news is many smartphones are a thing. Specifically, the one I found is the Sudroid Soya Super Mini. It's about three and a half inches tall and like 1.7 inches wide. So once again, you cannot carry it with you. However, it is just a fully functional Android phone and you could use it as basically like a very souped up smart TV. You might be able, you might be able to carry it. It's big, like a well, backpack. Okay. You, but... Wait, what are the dimensions? Uh, it's like 3.4 inches tall. 1.7 inches wide you could literally carry it you could not put it in your pocket <laughs> no you couldn't put it in your pocket you, you could get like an apple watch i guess you still need a phone with that right but i think there's some standalone like apple watch knockoffs right and then just cut off the straps maybe i don't know maybe i don't know if any of those actually maybe i guess that's possible also it's not that much smaller it's though. not much smaller though right and right. you're going to lose out on some functionality definitely because you're gonna be tied into yeah but yeah, this is just like a fully functional 3G phone, has front and rear facing cameras. And yeah, so I, I think that what's going to wind up happening is your actual life is going to be living probably in someone's home in a little dollhouse. And just in another living room, you're going to have like one of these smartphones mounted on the wall. And that's how you're going to actually, you know, communicate with anyone ever and, you know, like watch YouTube videos or whatever for entertainment. I mean, you could have a normal phone and hook like, I don't know if they have tiny headsets but you could hook up like a tiny Bluetooth headset to it and just have that with you. There was a tiny, a tiny non-smartphone um, that you could wear as a Bluetooth headset that I found, but I believe it would still be too big. It wasn't that much smaller than this. It was like two inches tall and it was still big enough that it's not like practical as a carry around phone for yourself, unfortunately. I guess I don't know why they would ever make a tiny headset. <laughs> yeah, I, I... I looked. I think it's one of those things where it's probably possible. It's just not something that anyone has ever done because it's not actually <laughs> practical for literally anyone. 
You could use you could just use like voice commands for for a big phone. The question is, and and maybe this will be the next time we revisit this question is, would you be loud enough? Yeah, I want to look into that because I actually brought this up in my answer. I think when I was doing research for my first run of this question, I tried to look into that and couldn't figure out any way to determine how loud and or high pitched you would be. I feel like you're going to want to be texting probably (laughs) most of the time. (laughs) You You use voice command, you do voice to text and then text. Right. Perfect. There you go. I, I will say that you can totally like type on this key, like the on-screen keyboard on this phone. So you could actually do that. It would look hilarious because you'd be like full hand pushing, pushing <laughs> uh, letters, but it would work. So I think overall you could like, you could live as a six inch tall person, um, assuming you can find someone to take you in or I guess in order, you have to find a place where you can get electricity, which I think is going to be the hardest part about not living in someone's home, but it would work overall. And you would be, I guess, the answer to the other question we had, you would be able to fall off a dresser and not just immediately die. So that's cool. Actually, one thing, one thing I was, one thing I was just thinking of is, is you know, like, do you know those like, um, I'm not gonna call them scams, but you can um, purchase very small plots of land. Oh yeah. In uh, certain areas to technically become a lord. <laughs> I I looked into that some and I couldn't find so because I, I had the same thought. I was trying to figure out like the smallest plot of land you could buy, technically. And I couldn't find any that were actually, like, real, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> but you could totally just buy, like, an acre out in Montana or something for $100 on eBay and build a small, you know, get someone to build a small house there and live there. Electricity is a thing. Electricity is a problem. Because I don't think they can scale down the wiring that well. I don't know. You could figure it out. But Oh, actually, one other brief thing. Something I found. <laughs> this is entirely unrelated to the actual question, but I found it when I was researching camping stoves. I was on this this survival school website, and they had a store, and they had an essential oil medical survival kit, which the description <laughs> the description says that it provides you with the complete spectrum of essential oil you would need in the wilderness or a self reliance slash survival situation. Which, unless I'm mistaken, which would be None of them. You don't need any essential yeah. <laughs> oil in a survival situation, I don't think. But you could buy this for two hundred dollars. But it has the word essential in it. It does. I don't know. Like what? Like what? What? Like what? Even is an essential oil that's even related remotely to survival? Like so. Apparently, I actually asked the same question. Apparently, one of the ones they said is you can put lavender oil on burns, which I thought was a really bad idea. But then I actually found scientific research that suggested that it could help burns heal faster lavender essential oil so maybe man i don't know it still feels kind of bullshit not gonna lie but yeah i, I do love the signs on like like on herbal medic like on herbal medication and stuff like that where it's just like you know actually one of the 15 things one of the 15 chemicals in lavender does actually impact that a little bit but also you should use real medicine <laughs> right yeah yeah so Anyway, that was unrelated to my question entirely, but I had pulled it up because I wanted to mention it because I found it hilarious. So anyway, that's my answer. Then also some weird segue about essential oils. So hey, Marcus, <laughs> what did you do? So the one I do, and this question has been on my mind for a while. So so this one was, what if friction were double? And in my head, this is like one of the like real solid hypotheticals for this show because it's going to have a lot of interesting little implications here and there. Do you remember what episode number that is? Oh, um, I got it. I got it. 27. 
27. Thank you. I did not look that up ahead of yep. time. <laughs> I, I realized that as you kept cocky, and I figured I'd go and uh, find that for you. Yeah. Yeah, so episode 27. And this is one of the ones where I was pretty much... I think I was disappointed in all of us for our for our answers on this one. So what we covered, probably, I'll say the... Probably the best one, I think, here was... Um, Ben, you covered, like, car efficiency, because, you know, oils and lubrication, all that is part of making a, a, a car engine go. Uh, that was Chris. I was I was the clothing oh, one. Oh, what? Then you, you might have flipped them. Did I do that? I don't think I did. What did I do? Wait, that's what it says. That's what it says on the spreadsheet here. Maybe I did. I, that's that's where I looked. Oh, my God. This is a mess. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on. I'm going back to my nose. I want to make sure I didn't actually talk about cars. I don't think I did. Oh, cars is under my name. Yeah. I don't remember doing that. All right, full disclosure, I did not listen to this episode back because I wasn't going to do anything related <laughs> to anything that we did. Um, but one of you guys did car efficiency, and the other one covered clothes, and I guess, you know, kind of just talking about how they might be less comfortable. I don't even remember what the... Uh, you did the beach. In, yeah, and so for me, I was I did just like, oh yeah, lots of the stuff on the beach would kind of suck because <laughs> it would be sand and salt water and all that would be pretty uncomfortable. So none of them really went anywhere. Yeah, that's pretty <laughs> it's kind of, And so... I was like, okay, no, there's definitely some cool stuff. And I, you know, 100 episodes later, we have many, many more ways that we know how to break physics and make things exciting. So I kind of just started doing, you know, starting, and I'm like, let me just look at the cool, extreme things that might happen and see where it leads me. So I started with, so basically, what what is friction in general? So basically, friction is the kinetic energy lost is heat due to the resistance of motion. So if you have two things rubbing up against each other, you know, the all the little surface imperfections will get caught on each other and slow things down and you know that that rubbing is lost as heat and you know the the object slows down. That's friction. Not too complicated there. But also there's friction that occurs at an atomic level. So even if you had two perfectly like molecularly flat surfaces going past each other, the chemical interactions between the atoms would cause friction because it'll be like oh this this atom's trying to grab onto this atom or you know these electrons are attracting each other a little bit and you can actually generate friction without like physical contact in the traditional sense and one of the interesting things about the atomic friction too is that it's like because it's more chemical it's actually directional based so like if you go along you know left to right on an object it might be a different amount of friction than if you go up down and all those different things. So I was like, oh great, this is gonna this is gonna start breaking stuff because where does where does chemical friction come into the scale of like properties, materials, and things? And what happened was is that this is kind of like a new a newer science or a newer research, mainly not because it's like groundbreaking stuff they're finding, but more so it doesn't really affect anything. It is not a relevant friction force in you know, once you scale it up above literally like a controlled lab environment. So as cool as it is, doesn't actually change anything. So breaking all things at atomic level wasn't going to happen. But I'm still thinking big. So one of the parts where friction is caught, you know, causes a lot of, uh, or doesn't cause a lot of problems, but is a big factor is like spacecraft reentry. You know, you have the spacecraft come down, hits the atmosphere, that air friction causes this nice big fireball. And from there, I got thinking, oh, no, no, let's, let's, let's forget about spacecraft because I don't care if it's just harder to build a spacecraft and going, and that's not particularly interesting. Let's look at the other thing that enters our atmosphere of speed, meteors. So if 
friction were doubled, would the added air friction protect us from the, uh, and pronunciation here, Chicxulub impact, the one that killed the dinosaurs? So Purdue University actually has a really cool impact earth, they call it. And it's a calculator for what damage a meteor would cause if it hit the earth. And you can basically pick the size of the meteor, how fast it's going, what it's made out of, what angle it hits the earth at, whether it hits the ocean or the land. And you get to pick your distance from the impact and it'll tell you like, oh, at this location, you know, you'll have been ejected along with the ground below you into space or the, you know, you'll have magnitude eight earthquakes, you know, 500 kilometers away. And you can keep, you can plug in different parameters for making um, the impacts here. And uh, basically what I was doing is I was, I was scaling, trying to scale the impact down based on the air friction. And after digging down for a while, turns out, yes, a, a lot of meteor impacts are stopped by the air friction. Like, you know, they burn up and before they ever hit the ground and it would give us a, a bigger barrier. But when you start talking about things that are, you know, miles across, turns out air friction doesn't do shit. <laughs> it, is, <laughs> it is a negligible factor. So, you know, you're trying to slow this thing down. The Chicxulub meteor hit the Earth at an estimated 20 kilometers a second, which is just thousands and thousands of miles per hour. I didn't do, I didn't do the conversion, but 20 kilometers a second. You're, you're basically slowing it at, like, doubling the amount of air friction force that you're applying to the meteor as it hits us, it's not making literally any difference. Like, you can might as well just throw out that calculation. So, again, doesn't save the dinosaurs. Very sad. But it did lead me to look at just friction in the air in general. So we have, you know, our planet has wind and air blowing all around, and friction is the dissipation, you know, it's all that energy is going to be dissipated as heat, at a higher rate because of double friction. So would our planet heat up from the wind blowing, just like the natural wind blowing around and hitting things and all this extra friction is gonna just generate more energy. So basically the amount of energy in our atmosphere is 240 watts per meter squared. And so to kind of put that in perspective, the, the main source of energy to the earth is from the sun and that's 340. So basically 340 hits the planet, about 70 it's reflected 240 gets trapped, you know, either absorbed by the surface, which then gets emitted into the air and kind of just like lives around in the atmosphere to keep us at our, you know, our little warm temperature. So of that, the amount of energy that's mechanical energy. So basically when the air heats up and all these heat temperature differentials get the wind moving. So how much of that energy is actually captured in wind motion, which would then transfer into friction motion. Turns out it's roughly... One to two percent of that, so ninety-eight percent of the energy is just heat, and only a small fraction of that is actually motion of the air. So again, no, these numbers are pretty small in the grand scheme of things, and doubling their effect isn't causing any nonsense problems. But it did pull me into one little interesting area where this kinetic energy has to be dissip dissipated somehow, otherwise the wind would keep speeding up, speeding up, speeding up, speeding up. You know, because the energy's not going anywhere. And it was originally thought that it's basically mostly dissipated just by turbulence. So, you know, the air just swirls around, rubs against each other, and just that natural friction would slow it down. But it turns out that a equal or greater impact on that is actually the friction caused by rainfall. So just rain falling through the air actually slows down the wind 
um, just as much as the wind naturally petering out on its own, which I thought was pretty cool. Again, no, no direct implications from that, but it did get me thinking about rainfall. And interesting, I also talked about terminal velocity here, Ben, because one of the implications of double friction is that it will directly impact an object's terminal velocity. So terminal velocity is basically the point where the friction of the wind you're going through, the drag force, is equal to the acceleration from gravity. So it kind of evens out. So the force pulling you down is equal to the wind pushing back up on you. And as you speed up, speed up, speed up, you get more and more drag because you're pushing more and more air, and eventually they, they even out at your terminal velocity. So what's cool about this with rain is that one of the methods in which raindrops get bigger outside of just when they form generally is that they'll collide with other raindrops as they fall. Like, so if you ever see like a raindrop you know, going down your windshield in the car, it'll bump into another one and they, they jump together into one bigger raindrop. So if you slow them all down with this air friction, because you're now reducing their terminal velocity, so the rain is going slower, it's got a more like gentler rainfall, it's going to give them even more time and opportunity to coalesce into bigger raindrops. And so I was like, cool, we're going to have giant rain. And then doing some more digging out to try to figure out how much that was, there's a couple mitigating factors. So the first problem is, is that it might not be that much slower, because as the raindrops form together to make bigger raindrops, those bigger raindrops have a higher terminal velocity. So the bigger the, the, the more mass of an object is, the, the higher the terminal velocity is. So because you're going to have more mass per your surface area as objects increase in size. So the rain's going to start falling faster. So you may not actually have much more time to collect rain. It's not like all, everything is slowed down to the snail's pace. It'll be a little, you'll have bigger drops, but they'll be falling faster than again. Um, until they're falling about the same speed. And then the other limiting factor on drop size is that, and this was actually just interesting to read about from a, I'm going to say a nerdy standpoint, because I don't think it's that interesting on its own, right? But there was a lot of debate on why raindrop sizes are what they are. And there's a lot of debate between whether it's raindrops colliding, or whether it's how they form, or if there's just some other complex mechanisms that nobody could figure out. And one of the, one of the, um, leading theories now about why the, the raindrops are distributed even like generally evenly as they are now is that when a raindrop falls and starts getting bigger, eventually what happens is the air pressure will cause it to kind of parachute. And so the drop, the drop like starts to get, the bottom becomes flat. It starts to get bigger and bigger and bigger until eventually it like the wind pushes through the middle and makes it like a donut and it, and it pops back into smaller raindrops. Yeah. I, I knew, I knew that raindrops don't, didn't have that like, stereotypical teardrop shape to them like we think they do yeah that's the thing too yeah they, they're basically like like basically hockey pucks where the bottom is flat and the top is a little bit rounded because there's a there's a negative pressure on top of the raindrop due to the air, the aerodynamics so the, the top gets pulled back a little bit to make it round and the bottom is flat because it's all getting pushed up so there's a point where the aerodynamics regardless of the friction and air size is going to cause the raindrops to burst off into smaller ones anyway so Conclusion here, if friction was doubled, nothing really changes, and raindrops maybe get a little bigger. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, this, this, one, this one was tricky. Like, it was, I think the issue is that, is that we only doubled it. If we took friction and made it 100 times, things would start to change. But we're only changing a number by a factor of two, and not too many things are, like, cubically related to 
friction like they would be for some other numbers we changed, like, you know, mass or volume or density. I, I think I think if we had done this now, we probably would have done it where it scales up bit by bit like we do with a lot of our questions, which is nice because then we could say like, oh, when do you start catching on fire when you like, you know, run around and stuff. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Or when can't you move through the air? All these little all those little things. But I, I did it as it was really intended. And I found a lot of fun information along the way. So I, I figured I'd just bring you guys along with my journey into literally nothing. <laughs> I think you I think you inadvertently disproved one of my older another one of my older questions from episode 11 where I said that the dinosaurs would survive if earth was double the size. <laughs> I think you disproved oh. that. You know, I was getting deja vu on on that on like saving the the planet from a meteor impact. I'm like, I didn't do it. But I can't remember when we would have done it otherwise. And I thought what it, I thought what happened is I pitched it to you when we did this question back when, and then you ended up doing um, well. Whether you did the car or the clothes one, who knows? <laughs> no, it was for a different, completely different episode. But yeah, like I said, we're improving. We now know that doesn't work because space rocks are fast. <laughs> Chris, what did what did which one did you cover? So the question that I returned to was, "What if Earth's surface was smooth?" It's from episode sixty three. It's actually one of our later episodes, but I thought it was it's fitting for our throwback question just because this was especially my answer to this question was like one of the bigger mistakes that we've made on the show or that I've made on the show. So just to kind of summarize the question that or my my answer that I did for this question. So I covered like rain and water and No, I covered rain and water just now, Chris. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> you guys stealing my answers, I think. <laughs> or we're just becoming a hive mind because I somehow did something that's in Ben's answer and in your answer. <laughs> it's actually kind of a good thing that I went after you, I think. You'll see why. <laughs> but yeah, so I mainly looked at rain and water and like runoff, how runoff works, because if the earth is smooth then uh you don't necessarily have runoff. And then I ended up looking at like impermeable surfaces specifically granite and i like i looked at if there was like a really big area of granite that was completely smooth and it's impermeable what happens to the rain when it falls onto the granite and my end point for that was that all the water drops would group up and form into one giant drop and you'd have like a wall of water in front of you um that's wrong <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think it was actually pretty like pretty immediately after that i realized it was wrong but i never had a chance to talk i think we did talk about it in one of the behind the scenes yeah we talked about behind the scenes and and i think that and unless you're about to just get into it but i think it was a scaling problem of surface tension yeah so i based i actually based that theory off of the property of contact angle so like contact angle is like the interfere the interaction between liquid and the solid so like it depends on what solid what materials you have but like for water on granite it has a very specific contact angle where like the edge of the drop is at a certain angle and that's supposed to be maintained no matter how big the drop is and that's based on another property called wettability for the granite and that's all constant because it's all the same material so that's i mean that is still true the contact angle remains the same but I scaled it up incorrectly. So it won't be a giant drop. What will actually happen is the gravity will actually overcome the surface tension part of the drop and it'll flatten it out and you'll have basically just a shallow puddle and then the edges of the puddle will have that contact angle maintained. So that's what will actually happen. That's boring though. And I wanted <laughs> to 
try to make this giant water drop thing work. <laughs> I wanted to correct. I want didn't necessarily want to correct my fact. I wanted to force my fact to be correct. <laughs> <laughs> I, I found the fun thing, so I'm just going to change the question until it suits me. Yeah. <laughs> so what can I do to achieve this? First, I looked into uh, what actually causes the drop to flatten out. So it is gravity. And there's a property of a water drop that's called capillary length, which is basically the relationship between surface tension and gravity. So a drop with a radius smaller than the capillary length is considered a micro drop, which means that surface tension, the shape of the drop is governed by the surface tension and it becomes like a dome shape. If the radius of the drop is larger than the capillary length, then it's considered a macro drop. And that means that the gravity will dominate the surface tension. It'll flatten it out. It won't be a dome shape. Macro drop is a really good DJ name. <laughs> <laughs> True. So the capillary length of water is 2.7 millimeters. So that's the biggest sized dome drop that you can have. It's 2.7 millimeters. You're not going to get a giant drop. So I'm like, okay, I need to increase the capillary length of water in order to get my giant drop. What are the factors that affect capillary length? There are two. I mean, obviously, there's, there's gravity and surface tension. So... Obviously, one way I can increase the capillary length is to reduce the gravity. So, I mean, we've done that on the show before. We've reduced gravity. If we have reduced gravity, we can have a giant drop. Or if we, like, put it on a different planet or something, if we put it on the moon, um, we can have a bigger drop. But that's not really what this question is. This question is, what if the Earth was smooth? Which means that our giant drop has to be on Earth with Earth's gravity. So we can't change gravity, which means that we have to change surface tension. So what exactly is surface tension? So a cause of surface tension is, it's basically depends on two things, cohesion and adhesion. So if you're looking at water, like inside a drop, each water molecule is surrounded by a bunch of other water molecules, and they're all attracted to each other. And that's cohesion because it's like the same material molecule is attracted to another of the same material that's cohesion god my, my brain is like really really waiting for like the high school teacher mnemonic device to tell me the difference between adhesion and cohesion <laughs> <laughs> well the difference is basically just adhesion is between two dissimilar materials whereas cohesion is two similar materials so cohesion is happening inside the, the water drop and it's all equal in all directions so it nets zero but at the surface of the drop it doesn't net zero because you have the air and the interaction between the water molecule and the air is adhesion. And the strength of cohesion is stronger than the strength of adhesion. So you have an, a net inward force towards the center of the drop, which is kind of holding the drop together. And then you also have a tension force that's parallel to the surface of the drop due to the cohesion between the molecules next to it. So surface tension is kind of a combination of those two forces the inward force and the tension force and uh yeah that's that's what surface tension is so the surface tension of water specifically is 72.8 millimeter uh, millinewtons per meter at 20 degrees celsius and that's actually like one of the high like water has one of the higher surface tensions of of all liquids it's not the highest but it's it's up there and there's a reason for that. 
So a water molecule is H2O, so there's two hydrogen molecules or hydrogen atoms and one oxygen atom. And because of that, it can form four hydrogen bonds between four separate uh, water molecules next to it. So the two hydrogen atoms form a hydrogen bond with two separate oxygen atoms of different water molecules. And then the oxygen atom forms two hydrogen bonds between two other water molecules. It's a lot easier to explain if I had like a diagram, but I don't. <laughs> yeah, they, they, kind of, they kind of just like stack on top of each other where like the, the O goes between two other H's from two other ones. And then on top of that is another two H's. It like kind of alternates between two H's and an O. Yeah. But also in probably a, a 3D complicated lattice that is much harder to explain on a <laughs> podcast. Right. Yeah. But basically the end result is just it has four hydrogen bonds and hydrogen bonds are actually pretty strong. And that's why it has a pretty high surface tension. So I'm like, okay, so surface tension is due to this chemical bond between the hydrogen atom and the oxygen atom, which means that we need to increase that somehow. So I looked into the, what causes, like, what the relationship between the strength of a chemical bond is, and a chemical bond is, or the strength of a chemical bond is expressed in Coulomb's law. So it expresses electrostatic force as a relationship between the charge of two ions and the distance between those two ions. So if we want to increase the the strength of the chemical bond, that means we have to change one of these things. But if we change the charge of the ions or like the distance between them, that means we're changing the atoms or we're changing the molecules, which means that it's not really necessarily a water molecule anymore. And I want to make a giant water drop, so it needs to be water. But Another thing that's in this Coulomb's law is a thing called Coulomb's constant. So it's just a constant that people use when they're talking about like electricity and stuff. And Coulomb's constant is 8.988 times 10 to the 9 Newton meters squared per Coulomb squared. And it's just a constant that you multiply the charge of the ions in the, the distance by to get the number. My, my mental image of you right now is just like surrounded by science textbooks of different subjects <laughs> being like, and then Coulomb's law and like flipping over the next book is over here. I mean, that's basically what my research was. I was just like kept on going deeper and deeper and deeper until I got to where I wanted to get to. I'm absolutely here for it. <laughs> I think in order to achieve our giant water, mo our giant water drop, this is what we're going to change. We're going to change the Coulomb constant just arbitrarily. <laughs> <laughs> I guess basically my my hypothetical is what if Coulomb's constant increased <laughs> and that will get our giant water drop. So I, I defined our giant water drop as I, I kind of had to pick a size. I just chose to make it person sized because that seems like a, a decent benchmark, I guess, which means that the capillary length of our drop would have to be six feet. And that means that we need our surface tension to be. 32,671 newtons per meter. That's compared to our 72.8 millinewtons per meter. So that means our, our new surface tension is 4, 448,000 times stronger than normal. Now, the relationship between surface tension and the Coulomb constant is linear. So that means that our new Coulomb constant will also be 448,000 times larger. I'm sure that won't cause any problems anywhere else. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So now we that that means that we can achieve our giant water drop now, but this also obviously this is like 
for all chemical bonds, so it, it applies to other stuff too. <laughs> Does it just make all chemicals unbreakable? Like, <laughs> well, I I didn't really focus on everything. I, I focused more on like the where this water drop originated from, which was raindrops. Which you already covered raindrops a little bit, but the fact that our Coulomb constant is bigger now and that our surface tension is bigger, it means that our raindrops will also be bigger. So I, I guess I fixed your your problem. Yeah, you 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 got you got me to bigger raindrops, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, there's also a linear relationship between the Coulomb constant and the strength of electric fields, which makes sense because like the chemical bond is based on electrical interactions. But that means that electrical fields will also get 448,000 times stronger. So since we're talking about rain, I want to see if this if, if this affects lightning. Oh, pop up the next textbook. <laughs> yeah. So I looked at what causes lightning. And I think we've covered this on the show before, but I'll just briefly go it over again. So what causes lightning is there's ice and hail particles that collide with each other in a, a storm cloud. And... This causes the cloud to be positively charged on the top of the cloud and negatively charged on the bottom of the cloud. And this creates an electric field within the cloud. Now, on Earth's surface, below the cloud, it becomes positively charged. And then in between the Earth's surface and the cloud, the atmosphere acts as an insulator between the two. And then a charge builds up in the cloud until eventually the charge overcomes the insulating effects of the atmosphere and lightning strikes hits the Earth's surface, and temporarily equalizes the difference in charges. So that's what causes lightning. Now, with our stronger electric fields, I don't think we're necessarily going to have more powerful lightning because when lightning strikes, it's because it's overcoming insulating uh, effects of the atmosphere, and the atmosphere still has the same insulating effects. But what will happen is that the charge of the clouds will it'll charge more quickly, which... I guess, results in more lightning strikes happening more often. So we're going to have a lot more lightning strikes. We're going to have uh, 448,000 times more lightning strikes, <laughs> which is a lot. So right now we have 240,000 lightning strikes per year around the world. Uh, with our new Coulomb constant, we're going to have 100 billion lightning strikes per year or 3,000 lightning strikes per second. Great. Yeah, it's a lot. It's not going to be spread out around the world because we don't have like a constant thunderstorm around the entire world. It's concentrated to just where there are thunderstorms. So whenever you have a lightning or like a thunderstorm or like rain or whatever, you're going to have giant raindrops and you're going to have crazy frequent lightning all over the place. And you're just going to have these like mega storms. And that will be fun. <laughs> and... I'm sure a bunch of other stuff will change too because we're changing chemistry and chemical bonds. But I focus on the storm stuff. Yeah, I think I think if you increase the strength of all molecular bonds by five hundred thousand times, <laughs> I think it'd just be everything would just be one big molecule. Like it just would be a like would the whole universe just be a black hole because it'd be dense. It would be so dense, and then everything would just come together and nothing would leave, and then it would just go into. I don't know if it would necessarily be dense. It would be stronger though <laughs> oh i guess yeah i guess because it wouldn't actually it wouldn't bond with things it would normally molecules. bond with yeah it would be just it would be impossible to write out any chemicals because you'd be like all right h35612 oh <laughs> <laughs> but you would have a giant drop which is my 
Mangol. I corrected my my mistake. <laughs> so now I'm actually correct in episode 63. <laughs> yes, by, 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 by mathing it out until you hit a constant that you're just like, eh, fuck this one. <laughs> <laughs> you, you got there. All right. <laughs> and with that, we'll count that as fixed and move on to our uh, would you rather question. Chris, are you ready for a would you rather? Yes, I'm ready. Would you rather drive in a NASCAR race or be a jockey at the Kentucky Derby? How much time do I have to train? <laughs> um, hmm. I'm tempted to say zero. If it's zero, then I'll probably die in both. <laughs> <laughs> Let's say you get like a, I don't know. One day? Yeah, like a one-day training montage. So so here's here's another very important question. Do you have to do the entire event? Yes. The entire... Oh, Jesus. Okay. If it's the entire event, I am 100% going to say Kentucky Derby. Because the Kentucky Derby lasts like 30 seconds. You can say, I don't know, the horse didn't go that well. You can blame it on the horse. It's not your fault. Horse fault. <laughs> not you. the giant jockey on top. A NASCAR race is a very long time. It's very stressful. <laughs> How long are NASCAR races? I guess they like hours, like right? A like a lot of laps. Yeah. I mean, you don't necessarily have to win these races, I guess. So you could just go slow if you're scared of dying. But <laughs> but like a NASCAR race lasts about three hours when you're when you're driving at the regular speed. So like twelve hours, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> well, imagine you'd have time to get better at it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I guess technically yes. The question is, is it harder to not crash a car or is it harder to stay on a horse? It's definitely harder to not crash. Like, I don't know. I, I feel like I feel like the horse will realize something is wrong and, like, refuse to go at full speed. I don't know. I feel like your chances of, of both your chances of not dying and, like, the amount of time you have to be embarrassed are much in favor of the Kentucky Derby. Yeah, I probably... Is there a mercy rule true. in NASCAR? I mean, you could just, like, put your car into the wall a little bit while going not that fast and get, you know, well, can't drive anymore. I don't know. I mean, even if you're not going fast, there's still fast people going around you. And the fact that you're not going fast might cause them to crash into you. Oh, yeah, definitely. I like how I like how there's a I, I Google Mercy Rule for NASCAR and just gave me the NCAA Mercy Rule instead. There you go. <laughs> Thanks, Google. You're great. So the answer is probably no. <laughs> I mean, I imagine a NASCAR car is like way more complicated than a normal car um i don't actually think that's true i mean you only have so many hands to do things with right but you have to like know what you're doing still i mean it's a stick shift can you drive a stick shift nope <laughs> nope <laughs> Ooh, that's actually that might be a benefit i would stall out at the start yeah line. <laughs> you know that's actually a very compelling argument here's the here's the other thing too it's in a nascar race as opposed to the Kentucky Derby. Yeah, but like, like I guess, I guess the, I guess the horse races do even on the big ones do have stinkers. Like even in the Kentucky Derby, Belmont Stakes, all those. There's always that one horse that's like eighty-five to one. Right. Yeah, and like, like it can happen where a horse is just like, nah, I didn't go that time. Just didn't happen. Like you're like, I mean, a horse didn't go. I don't know. I don't tell you guys, horse didn't go. <laughs> like, which is, which is, which kind of always interested me. Like you would think that like it would be like the top eight best horses all year like do the derbies but meanwhile it feels like they're just like we're just gonna run this like any other race it just happens to be the big one yeah pretty much like are they selected for like skill like for the for the for the horses i honestly don't know how i don't know that much about the kentucky derby how do they pick i can't type right now how do they pick horses 
for Kentucky. Oh no, they do. It is. It is. Derby. No, there is. It is a point system. I oh, imagine there's right, some then. sort of qualifying requirements. What I actually googled was how do they pick gorseris for Kentucky Fetbody, but it was close enough. They figured it out. <laughs> yeah. The, so the the horses, the field. So basically, for the Kentucky Derby, the field is selected via a series of 35 races known as the Road to the Kentucky Derby. Points are awarded to the top four horses in each race. The top 20 in the standings at the end of the series earn their spot in the Derby. So there is there is competition to them. I guess maybe it's, it it could just be the, like that odds the way odds work. Like oh, you know this guy like just made it in and just runs slower all the time right yeah yeah i mean i imagine they wouldn't just pick random people to be in there (laughs) Uh, i think i think that honestly more than anything it's the length of time like you're going to be incredibly embarrassing whichever one of these you do yeah like there's no question and the length of time you'll be embarrassed is so much less (laughs) as a jockey but you can't hide inside your car you're completely visible to everyone but that, but, but yeah, see, I think like if you stall out, if you stall out or like crash immediately in an NASCAR race, it is not big news. Like it's you're embarrassed and the car is probably broke and but you're probably, you know, assuming you didn't get really off to a start, you're not dead. Here's <laughs> here's one problem though. I'm pretty sure NASCAR races do a rolling start. Yeah, I think they do. So you're going to be moving and surrounded by people who do know how to drive these very fast cars very fast when it starts and there's a good possibility that you could crash before the race starts <laughs> which would be incredibly embarrassing actually <laughs> that would be news and i think as and i think as part of the hypothetical you have to like start the race or else it doesn't count as having run. right yeah. exactly that said however you crash the car or something that's expected at nascar they don't expect the jockey to go flying off their horse the kentucky derby i don't think that's how you'd get embarrassed at the t- kentucky I think you just go slow at the Kentucky Derby, and that's how you get embarrassed. I think the chances of you actually falling off the horse are kind of low. Uh, mm. I, you know what? The more I think about it, the more likely you could get bucked off a horse. But once again, I think that's not that big a deal, like comparatively. I don't know. You will be on Sports Center. You're going to get replayed. You'll probably be a GIF. It's not ideal. Yeah. It could also just be a GIF of just like, you know, none of us are particularly short. So, you know, all the five foot one jockeys and then just like you very clearly with your dopey horse right like, yeah twice the size of the competition it is a lot more memeable than nascar because you is. actually see you and it actually is kind of goofy being able to see you where it is in nascar you're just in your car and you can't see you i guess there's there's less risk of i think there's less risk of death on the horse but also a much higher risk of lasting notoriety mm-hmm. yeah that's probably accurate Based on that, I think I know what I'm picking and what Marcus is picking. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Chris, what are you picking? So I'm picking the horse because, or Kentucky Derby because less chance of dying. I don't want to die. All right, Marcus, what are you picking? I'm actually also going to pick the horse. Ooh. Wow. Because, like, look, there, you have the excuse of they should never have let me in that derby. What were they thinking? Right. I don't have to be, I, don't, I wouldn't be embarrassed like long term about my inability to ride a racehorse because I was I had one day of training and just went for it. Plus, like I think I'd rather spend my day hanging out with like horses that would be cool. I don't care that much about cars. I'd rather spend that day at the highest level of horse racing than than car racing. I'm also going to pick horses because I feel like I feel like agreeing to drive in an actual NASCAR race is suicide. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, even for a brief period of time. So well, um, there you have it. 
if you want to support Ben's entry into the Kentucky Derby, wait, we are fundraising via what? our Patreon. <laughs> <laughs> so if we if we get sufficient funding through our Patreon, we are going to be purchasing a uh, a race, a thoroughbred racehorse, uh, entering it into the road to the Kentucky Derby, getting it qualified up into the final race, and last minute one day before letting Ben know that it is going to be his job to hop on that horse and go around the ring. So if you want to donate to that cause, www.patreon.com slash absurd hypotheticals and click on that become a patron button. It is only $1 a month, but you know, racehorses are incredibly expensive. So if you want to increase that donation to say a hundred thousand or 150,000, then we might be start get to uh, to a point where we can start buying some of these horses but that is entirely up to you. You know, give to your means. You still get the bonus episodes with just $1. Yeah, you still get the bonus episodes with just $1 or $100,000. <laughs> but if you really want to see Ben on that horse, 100000 is the way to go. Um, <laughs> and uh, that that's a monthly donation. So, you know, it'll be end of the year. We might already be going somewhere. So there's that. But in any case, you can join us next week where we answer the following question. For Christmas, Christmas time, guys, get excited! The, the the kringliest day of the year, and the question is, what if every house was a gingerbread house? <laughs>